Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Costas, how are you today? Hi, Howard. How are you? Uh, never better, man. Are you kidding me? Living the life. Well, Living the dream. I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> this is your top mark. I don't know. Oh, it is a high water mark. I have no doubt. There you go. Uh, Every day better than the next. Yeah. The you know, you know. remember that, that scene in the Bronx Tale when Sonny says to the kid, nobody cares? Right. Nobody, that's true. Nobody cares. <laughs> uh, I understand that uh, you're recreating the... Uh, former Bob Costas show on HBO. Tell me about it. Yeah, you know, uh, the title tells you everything. Back on the record with Bob Costas. So we're not exactly reinventing the wheel. Um, more or less the same idea. Uh, centered on sports, not entirely confined to sports, not looking at what happened yesterday necessarily. More big picture stories. Uh, the guests will mostly be newsmakers and significant figures in sports. But as we've done before, if you have someone who's generally associated with a different walk of life, but they have a point of view about sports, well, then we'll have them on the program as well. A mix of interviews, essays, panel discussions, that sort of thing. I've seen you uh, on CNN from time to time. Uh, and so, look, I know you have strong opinions about some, some things, whether it's sports or in the political arena as well. Uh, how often does that spill over into if you're sitting there with a sports guest, or do you stay away from politics there? I think you generally stay away if you are doing an event. Anytime that I've touched upon a topic that isn't strictly a sports topic, A, it's because it has obviously and pertinently intersected with sports, and B, it's in some sort of window apart from the event hosting the Olympics, there are always little moments. And even if I took advantage of those moments where I thought it was the right thing to do, that comprised 1% at most of the total presentation. Or on the football program, they actually asked me to do essays at halftime, but never when the game was going on or something in the pregame show. An issue comes up, you're asking Chris Collinsworth or the commissioner or whoever it is about it. And then they asked me to do those essays at halftime. And there were more than 100 of them over the years, and only two had any sort of political aspect to them. And yet the way things work in a social media world or a hyper-partisan cable news world, people will characterize you in whatever way makes it easy for them to create a straw man. And so it was, oh, he's always failing to stick to sports. Yeah, the definition is always 99% of the time. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So to me, it's just when when the issue is out there uh, and when it's both interesting and pertinent and in a show like this one on HBO which is completely disconnected from any specific event it'll be on late on Friday nights a few times a year following Bill Maher um, 
want people who are accomplished and significant in sports, but we also want people with a point of view. Sometimes I'll agree with it. Sometimes I'll, I'll challenge it. That's my job. I've uh, actually saw you when you were on with Bill Moore not that long ago, within the last couple of weeks, right? Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm a fan of Bill Moore, as I like where his point of view is. A uh, little yeah. irreverent, and that's okay, uh, as you are. But uh, people that know you, Bob, know that your passion is baseball. Uh, yeah. With everything else you've done in your career, it comes back to baseball. You have this love affair for the game that you've had uh, since growing up. Um, in of all places, Comac, Long Island. Now, people right. may not know of Comac, Long Island, but I lived in East Northport, right next door, not that long ago. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So it, it's uh, you didn't uh, you didn't uh, you weren't hanging out with Rosie O'Donnell then, were you? No, we went to the same high school, right. though, but ten years apart. And when I cross paths with Rosie, uh, which is not that often, it's like, hey, I used to be the best known person from Comac <laughs> South High School. And then you came along and spoiled the whole deal for me. <laughs> well, everybody knows that uh, you are part of the Syracuse mob. Stockton, mm -hmm. Tarico, Iron Eagle, Len Berman, Marv Albert, obviously, went to Syracuse into the famous Newhouse School. When you came out, uh, got into the Newhouse School, look, everybody knew that that was the place to go. I mean, Northwestern's got a tremendous journalism program. and You, you go uh -huh. all around the country, Missouri, same thing. But Syracuse, just look at the groundwork and look at the people that have been there. Uh, did you have this, I mean, what were your ambitions when you first went into Syracuse? You know, I dreamt of being a radio sportscaster. To me, the great broadcasters had been radio guys who incidentally occasionally appeared on television. And I read in a Nick yearbook during my junior year in high school on Long Island that both Marty Glickman, the original voice of the Knicks, and Marv Albert, his protege, who even then was legendary in New York. Every wannabe sportscaster who was of my generation was imitating Marv Albert, especially when pretending to broadcast basketball. Every kid uh, on a backyard quarter in the schoolyard, yes, you know, every, and we were all terrible at imitating him, but he was the guy. So I read Marty Glickman, Marv Albert, it's Syracuse. I know they play big-time sports. Uh, they were stronger in football then than they have been most recently. And then they became even stronger in basketball subsequently. But I'm thinking, look, it's not that far from home. It's a four-and-a-half, five-hour drive. Um, it has an acclaimed already, an acclaimed journalism and communication school. That reputation would only build over the years. And the list of people who became prominent, uh, mostly in sports, but also including people like Ted Koppel and prior to that, Dick Clark and others, uh, that list would only grow to where now it's, it's too long to recite it. It would take up your entire podcast. But even then, there was a reputation. And I checked it out, and I found out that they let student broadcasters on the air on the campus station almost as soon as they got there. A month into my freshman year, as terrible as I may have been, I was doing newscasts and sportscasts, and by my sophomore year, I was calling Syracuse football and basketball games mm. on WAER. And that, as you know, uh, you want to get a well-rounded education. Being a well-rounded person with a wide frame of reference helps you no matter what you do. But you cannot learn to be a broadcaster in a classroom. You have to do it. And being able to be on the air for all four years that I was a student there was very helpful to me. 
He's Bob Costas. Uh, obviously, people know the name. Uh, you come out of Syracuse. Usually, you don't go from, from college into a major market like KMOX in St. Louis. That was a heck of a leap right out of college. It sure was, and I apologize to those who've heard me tell the backstory. I guess I was pretty good when compared to my fellow students or people of my age uh, in my early 20s. And during my senior year at Syracuse, I got a job doing minor league hockey for 30 bucks a game in the old Eastern League, the Syracuse Blazers. So that gave me a little bit more professional experience. But certainly, I was not in a position to expect that I'd make the leap to KMOX which still now, but especially then, was a mecca of sports broadcasting. Harry Carey, Joe Garagiola, the great Jack Buck, later Joe Buck, Dan Deardorff, Gary Bender, Dan Kelly, who was the Mike Emmerich of his time, acclaimed as the greatest hockey announcer doing games on national television as well as the St. Louis Blues games. You could practically staff an entire network sports division with just the people who were and had yeah. been at KMOX, 50,000 watt station, located roughly in the middle of the country, on a clear night could be heard in up to 40 states, had all those things going for it. So who would think that a kid 22 years old, looked like he was 11, could possibly land a job there? But I had an in. My college roommate during my sophomore year was a second cousin of Harry Weltman, who you came to know when you did the Nets game, right. and Harry was later right. the general manager of the Nets. Well, he was going to be the president and general manager of the Spirits of St. Louis, who had just moved from Carolina, where they were the Carolina Cougars of the ABA. And so Roger, loving basketball, my buddy Roger Holstein, he played high school basketball in Ohio, and he was a huge basketball fan. So as a lark, he goes to work for his cousin Harry for a couple of years with the spirits before he gets on with whatever his real life's work turned out to be. And parenthetically, he invented or started WebMD, one of those great ideas that seems obvious to everybody once somebody thinks of it first. So Roger is doing pretty well um, living off WebMD. So he was, a, he was a bright guy to begin with, and he calls me and he says, look, uh, I'm here with this team. And I, you, you ought to apply for the job. And I say, Roger, there's no chance. He says, leave it to me. Okay, so I got to find a basketball tape. And I find a game that I did between Syracuse and Rutgers when I was a sophomore. And I listen to it, and it's not bad. And I edit out all the rough spots. And if the score doesn't sound chronological, I edit out any reference to the score. So it sounds like it's one consistent uh, sequence, Syracuse with the ball, Rutgers with the ball. And then I had an engineer buddy of mine re-recorded for me with the treble slightly down and the bass slightly up to make me sound a little more uh, authoritative. And this is in the days, it's not like now where you can just send somebody a link in the blink of an eye. These are reel-to-reel -reel tapes that go on a big woolen sack recorder that right. you probably get a hernia <laughs> trying to lift. And so I send the tape off and I later find out there's more than 200 applicants because after all it's KMOX and uh, many of those applicants had previous NBA experience and were much more seasoned than I was but Roger made absolutely sure that my tape was heard he put the tape into the recorder he put it on Harry Weltman's desk and when Harry came back from lunch one day before he could sit down Roger pushed the button and said listen to this boom 
And Harry said, hey, that's pretty good. Let's make this one of the ones we send over to KMOX because both the team and the station were receiving uh, applications. And they sent it over, and Jack Buck was among the people who listened to it, and Jack seemed to like it, and I was told that I was among the five that they narrowed it down to, and they brought me in from Syracuse for an interview. And you know, meeting Jack Buck, to me at that point, was like somebody who aspired to be a comedian meeting Johnny Carson yeah. or being on The Tonight Show. And I'm thinking, well, I made the trip to St. Louis. I met Jack Buck. They'll remember my name down the road, and I'll go back to Syracuse and mind my own business. And lo and behold, they hired me. And there you go. Well, the ABA back then was uh, people were wondering, could it compete with the NBA? And, and then, of course, the merger and a lot of great teams. And I remember the New York Nets team that had Julius Irving and an old friend of mine, Brian Taylor, who was at Princeton where I started my career. Uh, and and there was a heck of a, a heck of a team they had there, but there was a lot of talent in that league back then. I don't know how serious they were taken, but clearly uh, a lot of those a lot of those teams or a few of those teams were brought into the NBA. Uh, l- let me talk about your many Olympics that you've covered. I think it's like twelve. Is that fair? Twelve, yeah. yeah. Eleven as the primetime host, and I was the late night host in '88 in Seoul, Korea for the Summer Games, and Brian Gumble was the primetime host. Yeah, I remember uh, the 2002 Olympics because I'm covering it for CBS Radio, and across the hall is the NBC studio where you were, and we, we, uh, we'd be past each other a few times in the hallway. As a matter of fact, there was some music playing in the hallway, and you wound up dancing with my wife, which I really appreciated. Uh, <laughs> I don't even think you remember that, but that aside... I just hope she does. Yeah, she does. She's memorable. She says, best dancer I ever worked with. But she says it when I'm not in the room. Uh, The bar was low, I guess. Yeah, very. Uh, The thing that I, look, that brings me to today. And I know you have opinions about about the current state of the Olympics in in Tokyo. And I'm wondering how this can even take place with all that's going on with the COVID and everything else and people traveling. I'm wondering how this is not either postponed uh, or delayed. You know, I'm going to try to make this as concise as possible, but there are many aspects to it. The overwhelming consensus among health experts worldwide is that this is not a good idea. Some 70 to 80 percent of Japanese citizens think it should be either canceled or more likely postponed until next summer, the summer of 2022, when it appears likely that circumstances will be better. But the IOC has made it clear this is not a subject of debate. They are going full speed ahead. As we speak, Tokyo is still under an official state of emergency. Some 10,000 of their volunteers have quit. I would imagine it's a combination of concern over health issues, but also it's dawned on many of these people, this is not going to be the kind of experience we thought we were signing up for. With all the protocols and all the concern, the cloud of concern hanging over it, it's just not going to be as joyous and isn't going to involve the kind of human interaction that makes the Olympics appealing, not just for the athletes and for people watching around the world, but those involved in various ways. The cultural panorama of it is almost as important as the competition itself. And that's going to be diminished no matter how good a job NBC does, no matter how effective the IOC's protocols and the the Japan Olympic Committee's protocols are in keeping everybody safe, that cloud is going to hang over the Olympics. But there are a few dominoes that have already fall, fallen 
that are a concern. Every Olympic city has contracts for after the Olympics for use of the venues and sites. For example, the athletes village is going to be turned into commercial properties and some residential properties. The stadiums are already spoken for, for other sports events, for concerts, whatever. Those contracts have already been pushed back a year. If they're pushed back another year, then that creates further financial difficulties and further entanglements in Japan. The World Track and Field Championships are scheduled for next summer in roughly the same time frame as the Olympics would take place in Eugene, Oregon. What do you do with that? What do you do with the athletes who had peaked once and then put it off for a year? Can they put it off for another year? I think the answer to that is yes, but it isn't easy. With all those considerations in place, plus the fact that while the IOC has contributed something, something in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars, six, seven hundred million, to try and ease the burden uh, for the Japanese organizers, the vast majority of that burden falls outside the IOC. It's going to be billions and billions over their anticipated costs. The IOC will take a hit, but that hit will be smaller. They will still collect all or virtually all of what they have coming in broadcast rights, the bulk of that from NBC, even if the value of this as a television property is somewhat less for NBC because of all the circumstances we've talked about. And even if they thread all those needles, and that's a big if, with athletes and delegations coming from 200 countries with varying levels of health care, some of them with very, very low vaccination rates, even if somehow they thread all those needles and get through it without any kind of health crisis, the concern over that will be a cloud that hangs over it. And you combine that with very few spectators in the stands and all the other issues that you're not going to be able to completely sweep under the rug, um, even as NBC does a great job of presenting the events themselves. And then only months later, the IOC will find itself hosting an Olympics in Beijing, China. Now, we don't know for sure yet, uh, but it seems now that it's at least plausible enough to investigate. Did this, did the coronavirus pandemic start in a Wuhan lab? Whether that's true or not, that's going to be a concern. And a larger concern is that as much as people trumpet the Olympic ideals twice now in the space of 14 years, 08 to 2022, the IOC will have come to China which all things considered, its population, its resources, and its intentions is the biggest human rights violator on the planet. How do you reconcile that with all this talk about Olympic ideals, not to mention their little trip to Sochi in Vladimir Putin's backyard in 2014? I think that this is a, a year or several months that are going to be really rough on the IOC in terms of public perception. Hey, Bob, let me ask you about this. What was your first Olympics? What year? The first I was part of the broadcast yes. in 1988. Okay, in 1972, 16 years prior, was the incredible disaster that occurred in Munich. Yeah. Uh, uh, Shep Messing is a friend of mine. Uh, I was in, got involved with Shep when the Cosmos came to New York with Pelé and Beckenbauer mm -hmm. and that whole crowd, and Shep was the goalie. And we've remained friends all, all these years. And Shep has told me about what went on. He was in the same barracks where the murders took place and, and I remember the, 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 uh, the vision of Jim McKay saying, they're yes. dead, they're all gone. 
when you get ready to do an Olympics is that fear in the back of your mind you hope there's nothing as disastrous as that and how you would deal with it yeah I don't know if it's a fear it's a concern uh, several Olympics uh, that I've been part of have had security concerns and over time uh, all the measures taken to keep people safe uh, have increased uh, real lockdown type situations and you still have I guess you have that concern still coupled now with the health concerns so one of the things that the main host has to do and I learned this early on Howard my first few Olympics I was cramming and learning everything I could possibly learn but then I came to realize that the host has to be a good generalist you don't need to know every platform diver from Peru or every cross-country uh, skier from Denmark you need to know the big stories you need to know the history of the Olympics and then to your point you really have to know the circumstances of the city and the nation that is the host who's the head of security who's the chief of police or whatever their equivalent is does this nation have a prime minister or a president how does all this stuff work where do we turn who would we be interviewing what would we be talking about in the event of some kind of emergency the closest thing to that that we experienced during the time that i was the host was in 1996 with the bombing in uh, centennial park uh right. there was one fatality several injuries um it, it was terrible and tragic i don't know that it resonates quite as much as what happened in munich in 72 but by then the full, full forces of nbc news were there you know circumstances differ now uh jim mckay was the guy for abc news they couldn't get peter jennings they wasn't there jim mckay was the guy and luckily he was the right guy different circumstance when the earthquake hit at the world series in 1989 al michaels was it not just for abc sports but for abc news right and thankfully for them he was up to the task ted koppel and peter jennings were talking to him from the other side of the country but now nbc or any network that covers the olympics is going to bring a good portion of its news division there so in 96 when the centennial bombing happened was i part of the coverage yes so was hannah storm so was jim lampley but tom brokaw was also on the anchor desk for many consecutive hours as the thing unfolded so i don't think there'll ever be a situation where someone finds themselves in exactly the same circumstance that Jim McKay did. And in those circumstances, Jim was magnificent. Well, you're used to being, I was talking with the great Bob Costas, you're, uh, uh, your history as a host uh, encompasses all of the events. Uh, my first was in 92 in, in Albertville in France for mm -hmm. CBS radio, and my job was to cover speed skating. And we had the great Bonnie Blair, she won two gold medals that year. And I remember when she uh, stepped on the podium to get her gold medal and they played the national anthem. I got to tell you, the hair in the back of my neck stood straight up here in the, the, the national anthem of the United States while I'm in a foreign country. It's always an emotional, to one extent or another, it's an emotional moment. And you don't have to be a hyper, uh, a hyper patriotic person. We, I hope we all love our country, but you also see what that means to the participants. And you also see what it means when someone other than an American wins and what it means to him or her when their country's flag is raised and they hear 
their country's anthem. Um, what you don't have or haven't had, and it may not be the case, it may be the case again when we get to China in 2022, back when we first uh, became aware of the Olympics, uh, there was an obvious rivalry that played itself out at the Olympics between the United States and the Soviet Union. In more recent years, you haven't had that stark kind of competition. Now, U.S. and China, um, I don't imagine that the Chinese will excel as much in the winter sports as uh, they have in the summer sports, but still in 2022, I think there will be uh, an undercurrent there between the U.S. and China. Let me ask you this, Bob, what motivates you? Now? Yes. What motivates me is to do the things that I'm most interested in and to do them as well as I possibly can. Not necessarily to do anything I haven't done before, but just to revisit the things that mean the most to me. It doesn't matter to me anymore. Uh, obviously, you want some people to watch, but I get greater satisfaction out of doing something if it really resonates with me and I feel I've done it well. And half a million people see it on a given Tuesday night on the baseball network or however many are watching on HBO for this upcoming program. If, it, if it's in the bullseye for me, that is more gratifying than being on as I was for many, many years in front of the largest possible sports audience if the thing was just so-so uh, in my mind. So-so not so much in, my, in terms of my performance, but in terms of how connected to it I felt. And I've been lucky enough to do so many things uh, that were so widely seen. And the television landscape was so different in the 80s and, and 90s uh, and the early 2000s. So those, no matter who hosted or called those events, it resonated in a different way than it does now in a fractionalized television universe. So I've been more than lucky to have more than my share of that. And for the first 25 years or so of my career, almost everything I did was really connected to what my genuine interests and passions were. That was less true of the last decade uh, for me at NBC, which is not NBC's fault. They don't run a network for my benefit, but they had lost baseball. They had lost the NBA, my two favorite team sport things. I still very much enjoyed hosting the Kentucky Derby. But once you've done 12 Olympics, and the formats change a little bit. It was always enjoyable. It was always an honor, but maybe less enjoyable for me as I got toward the end of the run. So now, whatever I do, it just has to be something that really fits for me. Otherwise, um, no point crossing the street to do it. Yeah, I, again, we come back to your passion, which is baseball, and you're still involved. Uh, when I was doing the Milwaukee Bucks games, and at the time it was owned, the team was owned by a U.S. Senator, Herb Cole, uh, yeah. who was a boyhood friend of uh, Bud uh, Seelig. And before a, a, a Bucks game one night, uh, the guy that was doing the talk show leading up to the Bucks games asked if I would come on leading up to the game. I said, sure. And he, he led into something that was baseball related. And I said, with all due respect, I have a problem with the way baseball is going right now. He goes, why is that? I said, I don't understand how one league can have a DH and the other league doesn't. I don't understand how... The winner of the world, the winner of the world's of the um, the All Star Game, gets home field advantage in the World Series. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, who was listening, riding around, but Bud Selig? So he calls into the show and asks if um, if I would uh, ask the producer if I would come on with him. I said sure. 
he comes on and he said, Mr. David, this is Bud Seelig. I said, yes, Mr. Seelig. He goes, you can call me Bud. I said, well, you can call me Howard. How's that? And he, he, he said, that's fine. We got into this discussion. He said, I object to, the, to your objections about baseball. And I said, but tell me where I'm wrong. How do you not have continuity when it comes to DH in both leagues? How do you have an exhibition game dictate who gets home field advantage in the World Series? Jackie Robinson's got to be rolling over in his grave. Well, he got really upset with me. The next day, I get a phone call in my apartment from Herb Cole. He said, uh, Bud Seely called me. He's very upset with you. And I said, I know. Uh, he said, I heard the interview. I said, I said, Herb, seriously, did I, did I offend him? Apparently, I did. Did I disrespect him? I don't think I did. He goes, no, you didn't. But would you do me a favor? I said, sure. Would you meet Bud Seelig and me for lunch this afternoon? I said, sure. Bob, I go to lunch with him. With him, and he, he just, he, I, before I even put a napkin on my lap, he jumped in my face. I said, I said, Bud, come on, expli- tell me where I'm wrong. He never gave me the answer. And now, let's fast forward. I'm watching the Yankees-Red Sox last night, and I don't know if you saw the game. I did. But there were two calls, balls and strikes calls, against the, uh, against the Yankees. Uh, one against, I'm trying to remember, it was a pinch hitter. It was a, uh, Well, the one in the ninth was Rubnet Odor. Yeah, Odor. That's the guy. And the pitch was noticeably outside, and the umpire called it a strike. I was yeah. shocked that Bob Moon didn't get thrown out, but his third base coach did. Uh, it's, look, can it happen? Sure. Everybody makes mistakes. But I, I, even worse than that, I'm watching Araldus Chapman pitch the other day. Bob, I could have taken a nap by the time he got through throwing his first pitch. Yeah. Pace of play is a huge uh, issue for baseball and it's not a secret and they're concerned about it uh, Theo Epstein who uh, ended two curses in Boston and then in Chicago with the Cubs uh, now works in the commissioner's office and his job now is to try and uh, rein in the monster he helped to create with analytics and all the rest uh, and the pace of play is affected by dependency on analytics and by other things. Uh, baseball is supposed to have a pleasing, leisurely pace. That's part of its appeal. It's not supposed to have its present lethargic pace. Um, and the uh, what is now the out-of-balance uh, relationship between pitching and hitting, uh, as it was in 1968, and they did something about it, uh, not only by lowering the mound, but by shrinking the interpretation of the strike zone. And then a few years later, they added the designated hitter, and it had the desired effect. Uh, not that long ago, 20 years or so ago, it was out of whack the other way, largely because of steroids, and the game began to too often resemble a beer league softball game on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, a 10-8 game is enjoyable now and then. If it's the norm, something's out of whack. And right now, the league average is beneath what it was in 1968 and lower than any time it has been other than 68 since the 1880s. There's no action on the bases. Um, The stolen bases has fallen out of favor. Uh, A team like the Yankees, you may know this, Howard, they are last in baseball in stolen bases and stolen base attempts. 
They are last in terms of taking the extra base, going from first to third on a single, scoring from first on a double, and yet somehow they are also last in most runners lost on the bases. The major league average is 14, running into outs on the bases. The Yankees are somewhere in the 30s at this point. So not only is this frustrating from the standpoint of what it does to the Yankees' one-loss record, the Yankees are not entertaining to watch no. because they're so reliant on the home run. Right. Their games move at a plodding pace, et cetera, et cetera. So they're, they're one team out of 30, but they personify uh, – the difficulty that baseball is facing. Now, rewind to what you mentioned about Bud Selig. Bud has always been very sensitive to criticism, but I'm surprised that he was kind of in your face because Bud is really a very nice man. And he actually believes, I think, at some level, look, I'm a nice guy. I'm always a nice guy. I'm cordial to everyone. How can anyone doubt my best intentions? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you can you can disagree on a pleasant and civil level and i often disagreed with bud but i always liked him very much personally you know the thing with the dh was i was okay with it because i didn't mind the different styles and the different strategies but that was before interleague play now with interleague play right and injuries being a concern and pitchers being babied now you got american league managers and front offices very concerned about american league pitchers being injured running the bases or hitting that there's too many games where nl and al meet when they met in the world series especially when uberoff changed the rule to say we'll play under american league rules in american league parks and we'll play without the dh in national league parks i thought that created interesting strategic circumstances for the world series but now with so many interleague games i think they're going to have to come uh to some sort of reckoning with this and i think it's inevitable that there will be DHs in both leagues. Do you think, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll make the statement. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. I think that if Pete Rose had admitted to Bart Giamatti that he bet on baseball, he'd be in the Hall of Fame by now. Yes or no? Absolutely. Correct. It would have been maybe suspended for three to five years. But if he came clean to begin with and minded his P's and Q's after that, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. Not necessarily working and receiving a salary from a major league baseball team or from the league office, but he'd be in the Hall of Fame. Any regrets after all these years? Outside of doing this yeah. podcast. You know, I was just talking to my wife about this uh, yesterday. Um, one regret I have is that I left the late night talk show, which was not a sports program, the later program, which in the late 80s and early 90s followed Johnny Carson and David Letterman and later Jay Leno. Uh, and David Letterman um, and Conan, I guess, toward toward the end of my run. I did it from 88 to 94, and I still hear very appreciative comments about it. I guess it's had a new life now with YouTube because some guy said to me last week, you know, my, my flight was delayed. I'm sitting in the airport, and I'm watching you with Dennis Hopper. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. I interviewed Dennis Hopper in 1990 on later. So it's it's gratifying that it has that that kind of second life. Um, I think it was among the best things I ever did. Uh, at that point, I was commuting between St. Louis and New York. Uh, my kids were, were young. It was seven and, and four, seven and five at the time that, that I that I quit. Uh, eight and five, I better get my kids' ages correct. There's three years between them. At the time that I stepped aside 
and NBC had just extended its Olympics commitment. They had just gotten a piece of baseball back. The NBA on NBC was a big deal, and I was going to be involved in all those things. And something had to come off the plate before I met myself coming and going and before the quality was diminished somehow. And so I chose to leave later. But in retrospect, I, I could have I could have ridden that train for another five or six years, um, and I wish I had. Yeah, the greatest form of flattery is somebody impersonating you. I understand that Daryl Hammond on SNL impersonated you. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, although I, I kidded him, and he, he later went on MLB Network and, and talked about it in this vein. Um, I can't do any of the people, but he's imitating me supposedly, and he had he had the inflections, I guess, uh, and he had the combination of words, uh, the way I might express myself, but I never thought he quite got the voice, uh, and that's what I said to him. So he has another riff where he's getting me speaking to him saying, you've got the great Clinton, you've got the great Gore, you've got the great couple, but you tried to do me, and you failed utterly. Now, <laughs> it makes people laugh anyway, even though I don't really think it sounds like me. Sounds like Cosell. A little. Now, you know, any, ever, almost all of us can do a halfway decent Cosell. Right. Right? Right. Now, the question is, I mean, take somebody totally obscure. That's going to be the hard thing. Hey, Bob, uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I, I know that uh, you've accomplished a lot, 28 Emmys. Uh, you got to be very proud of that and what you've accomplished, Hall of Fame in sports broadcasting. Uh, but there's a... There's, I just, I, I, and I'll, I'll leave you on this. I've seen some things that have been very disturbing to me of late, the spitting on Trey Young, popcorn being thrown on Westbrook, uh, a bottle being thrown at uh, Kyrie Irving, and then some clown decided to run on the court at the Wizards-Sixers game. Is this more about a microcosm of where we are as a society? I think there's multiple um, factors that come into play. Obviously, there's some pent-up emotion or energy uh, from people being kept inside and not going to these events because of COVID, none of which excuses that kind of behavior. Uh, I also think that you know, social media and the way a lot of talk radio or the, or the shows you see about sports on cable TV uh, whip people into a frenzy. It's no longer enough that you hope your team wins you demand that your team wins uh and you don't just root against the team that's playing against your team you hate them and you demonize people on the other team and all that sort of thing the whole tone of the culture the tone of the politics the tone even of the way we talk about sports now is angrier uh, than i ever remember it being um, and social media contributes to that as well and the gulf between players and fans and the way fans perceive that uh they're in a different realm than we are uh even average players are paid astronomical sums and therefore we resent it more we the fans resent it more when they fail to meet our expectations um and players have more freedom than they once did and so um what was always a little bit of an illusion uh on the part of fans which is that they play for us and we're one of them they're our team. Um, now that that mythology is challenged all the more when, especially in basketball, uh, players kind of make their own pickup team. You know, look at look at the Nets. 
Look at the Lakers with Davis and, and LeBron. Look at what LeBron did with the Heat. They're perfectly within their rights to do so, but that creates a further schism between the fan and the player or his perception of what that relationship is, which justifies this asinine behavior. But you asked me to explain it, and I think the reasons I cited are part of the explanation. Yeah, well, good luck with the show returning to HBO. Uh, Thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it, and stay safe. Thanks, Howard. Talk to you soon. Take care, man. You got it. He is the great Bob Costas. Had a hell of a career. I think it's unparalleled. Yeah, a lot of guys have had great careers. I'm proud of what I've done, but have I done all what Costas has done? No. Uh, does it bother me? No, not, a, not in the least. He had the opportunity, made the most of the opportunity, deserves a ton of credit. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live. Stay safe. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube